Hello and welcome to another bonus episode of Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure game books out loud on the internet. My name is Hieronymus J. Doom, and this is another episode made possible by my patrons over at patreon.com hjdoom. Your support makes it feasible for me to produce these bonus episodes, which everyone gets to enjoy, so thank you to each and every one of you. I also have to thank a new patron this time out, Michael. Thank you so much. Your support makes me, well, very happy, and I hope you enjoy the game book and the complete role-playing game that has been emailed to you. A quick supplementary note for those that have expressed kind words about my health problems. I'm recovering very quickly, really. I'm barely in any discomfort at this point, although I'm still quite weak. Modern medicine is frankly amazing. This episode is special. A number of people have been in touch to suggest that I cover Heart of Ice by Dave Morris, and I'm delighted to be in a position to make good on that suggestion today. We've already featured one Dave Morris book on the podcast, a spin-off from the popular UK TV show Nightmare with a K. I had a nice time with that, but this time it's something much meatier on the table. Now, Morris is a legendary creator within the UK RPG scene. He designed Dragon Warriors, a much-beloved RPG system that holds up surprisingly well today, as well as a host of adventure game books and video game materials. He is one of the titans of the industry, and I'm so looking forward to seeing how this book plays. It was written by Dave Morris, and once again we have interior art by Russ Nicholson, who I was so effusive about on the preceding episode, so that is a nice little bonus I wasn't expecting. I have a digital edition, which was published by Fabled Lands in 2013, with a cover by John Hodgson. The original book was released in 1993 by Reed Consumer Books. Let's get on with it. Heart of Ice does a sensible thing and gives you some background before you generate your character. It makes sense for me to cover that background first so you understand what the context is. The last three centuries. In 2023, worsening conditions in the world's climate led to the first global economic conference. It was agreed to implement measures intended to reverse industrial damage to the ecology and replenish the ozone layer. Ooh, that's aged poorly, hasn't it? Oh dear, that's aged really poorly. Imagine deciding to do something about the climate crisis rather than simply sitting there on their giant stacks of money thinking, do you know what, I don't really care if the children inherit an earth that's livable, I'll be dead by then. Anyway, I mustn't get sidetracked by my outrage at the state of the world. This is a pretend world that is dystopian yet better than ours. By 2031, an array of weather control satellites were in orbit for added efficiency and, as a mark of worldwide cooperation, these were placed under the control of a supercomputer named Gaia, the Global Artificial Intelligence Array. Now that is actually a pretty good backronym. I'm a fan of a well-constructed backronym and I have to say Global Artificial Intelligence Array is a good one. The Earth's climate began to show steady improvement. The first hint of disaster came early in 2037, when Gaia shut down inexplicably for a period of 17 minutes. Normal operation was resumed, but the system continued to suffer glitches. One such glitch resulted in Paris being subjected to a two-day heatwave of such intensity that the pavements cracked. After several months, the fault was identified, 
A computer virus had been introduced into Gaia by unknown means, presumably to try and subvert the world's first global supercomputer into mining for bitcoins. The system's designer began programming an antivirus, but died before his work was complete. The crisis grew throughout that year until, finally, following the death of 5,000 people in a flash flood along the Bangladesh coastline, the Gaia project was officially denounced. Unfortunately, it was no longer possible to shut it down. You see, that I do find believable. By the mid-21st century, global weather conditions were in chaos, owing to Gaia's sporadic operation. Ice sheets advanced further each year. Australia was subject to virtually constant torrential rain. The centre of Asia had become an arid wasteland. The political situation reflected the ravages of the climate, with wars flaring continually around the globe. Late in 2054, computer scientists in London tried to hack into Gaia and locate the replicating viruses in the program. Gaia, detecting this, interpreted the action as an attack on its program, which, to be fair, it was, and retaliated by taking over a range of defence networks which allowed it to launch a nuclear strike. London was completely destroyed, presumably causing house prices to drop by as much as 7 or 8%. £1,000 per calendar month to huddle beneath this pile of bricks. By the end of the century, Gaia had rooted itself into all the major computer networks, taking control of weather, communications and weapon systems all across the planet. Periods of lucidity and hospitable climate were interspersed with hurricanes and arctic blizzards. The US president gave an interview in which he likened Gaia to a living entity. She was intended as mankind's protective mother, but this mother has gone mad. Spiralling decline in the world's fortunes left much of humanity on the brink of extinction. The population fell rapidly until only a few million people remained scattered around the globe, mostly in cities where food could still be artificially produced. Now you see, that sounds quite nice. I'm not by any stretch of the imagination, a people person. I don't like being around large groups of people in particular. That's a population density I could totally get behind. It is now the year 2300 or 2300. The rich stand aloof, disporting themselves with forced gaiety and waiting for the end. The poor inhabit jostling slums where disease is rife and law is unknown. Between the cities, the land lies under a blanket of snow and ice. No one expects humanity to last another century. This is truly the end of history. So that is an awesome, really, really evocative opening. As always with prognostications written in the past, it's kind of right about some stuff and too optimistic about others. But yeah, I think that sets the scene really well. So let's have a look at the character we're going to be playing. We are only given a little bit of information at the outset. There's a list of 12 skills that define your character. Each character gets four skills from the list of 12. You can choose your own, uh, sort of a pick and mix approach, or you can pick from a list of pre-generated characters. I've chosen the latter option and I've chosen the visionary, a character afflicted with second sight out to change the fate of humanity. I've given them the name Blanger Heterodox, which feels suitably heroic and visionary. They have 10 life points, which is just basic hit points. Get to zero and you're dead. 30 scads, the currency of the future. And uh, the skills close combat, cunning, ESP and paradoxing. So close combat is your ability to solve problems by punching them. Cunning lets you solve problems by thinking. 
ESP lets you sense the future, provided you have access to your psionic focus, which kind of comes as part of the character kit. And paradoxing is the ability to create miracles by thinking real hard. And that also needs your psionic focus. There's no dice involved in this one, which means I don't get to announce I'm going to roll some dice at any point. But while I mourn the loss of my beloved polyhedrals, I'm also excited to find out how their absence affects the design of the game. With that out of the way, let's embark on our adventure into Heart of Ice. I'm going to roll no dice. No, no, it's not the same, is it? It's not the same. The Etruscan Inn lies in the shadow of the Apennine Mountains, beside a frozen waterfall, sheltered from the wind by a high ridge of bare black rock. I've suddenly realised I don't actually know where the Apennine Mountains are. I was so bad at geography at school. So very bad at geography. I preferred history. I really should have picked up where the Apennines are at some point. Etruscan, so Europe, Italy, Spain. I'll go Italy. Oh wait, is that where we get the Apennine Way from? approaches Rome. Anyway, you stand at a long window and gaze out towards the mountains. Dusk is melting the sharp outlines of the crags, filling the valleys with blue gloom. The moon glimmers faintly under racing black clouds. Later this evening, there will be more snow. Turning from the window, you let the curtain fall back and make your way across the dingy room. Travellers sit at the sides, noisily gambling and sipping hard liquor the colour of fire. Many are hunters and traders from the plains which slope down from here to the Ligurian Sea. Others may have been here much longer, thin, old men and women who found meagre employment. The Etruscan Inn is a famous stopover for those who undertake the perilous Apennine crossing. If a few such, gazing up at the ice-capped peaks, found their spirits daunted and chose to stay, who can blame them? You sometimes wonder yourself why you bother to press on across the world in the teeth of such hardship and poverty. As a man thoroughly lacking in backbone and moral fibre, it's sort of interesting to know that I would be just totally dead in this kind of harsh, dark future that uh, Mr Morris is conjuring for us. The story of how the inn came to be here is a strange one, even for these bizarre times. The building was originally an air cruiser which crashed in the mountains 200 years ago. An ancestor of the present innkeeper turned the wreckage into a hostelry for wayfarers. The power units had not been damaged in the crash, so the inn has electricity, a rarity in the modern world. Even better, several of the air cruisers care techs were salvaged. These are robots which continually clean and repair the structure, sturdily carrying out the tasks they were programmed to do centuries ago. Oh, that's a good image. That's a really good image. Pushing aside a drape, you step into another room. On the wall, a screen flickers with scenes from an old film. The innkeeper is sitting with a few others at the back, loudly commenting on the action. You step over a care tech which resembles a long metal cockroach. It extends polishing pads to clean the floor where you are standing. Propping yourself against the wall, you watch the film for a few minutes, but the innkeeper's shouts and jeers are impossible to ignore. When you complain, he only gives a great gusting laugh and says, There's no point in getting interested in any film that appears on this screen. The video link comes from a satellite connected to Gaia who changes channels at whims striker. Sometimes I have seen newsreel footage over a century old. At other times there are films, musical shows or documentaries. But I have yet to see the end of any programme there. 
He points at the screen and turning you see that the film has been replaced by a blizzard of grey static. I would like to apologise to the denizens of the European nation of indeterminate specificity that I doubtless offended by that outrageously bad accent. Turn it off, can't you? growls a man from the adjacent room. Some of us would like to get some sleep. Turn it off, for you say? The innkeeper bellows with laughter at this. It hasn't been off in all the time I've been alive. It can't be turned off, not unless Gaia decides to take pity on us and give us a few hours' peace. It's another great image. Imagine trying to watch TV in a, a world where a bored five-year-old has got control of the remote in perpetuity. An angrily florid-faced man stamps through from the other room and glowers at the screen, which has now changed to show a weather report for the coming month. Preposterous, he snarls in outrage. It says New York will be having thunderstorms. There has been no rain in New York for years. It's buried under half a mile of ice. The innkeeper only chuckles and goes about his jaws. And on to blame me, he says. Everyone knows Gaia is mad. The man whose rest was disturbed glares after him and protests. If you can't turn it off now, why not smash the screen? It only shows gibberish anyhow. Seeing the man step forward as if to do just that, the innkeeper wags a finger at him. I'd advise you to leave it as it is. Stick wads of wool in your ears if the noise disturbs you. But if you smash the screen, the Kertex will spend the whole night repairing it, and none of us will get any sleep. What with the scuttling about and the clattering of the spare parts. I mean, it still sounds nicer than staying in a travel lodge. Hearing this, the man throws up his arms in exasperation and, gathering his blankets, stomps off to sleep at the far end of the inn. Night falls, the drunken roistering turns to low murmurs, then snores. You huddle on your own bedding and listen to the moaning of the wind outside the fuselage. Tomorrow you will have to set out again into the cold. It is not a pleasant prospect. From the adjacent room you can hear the screen crackling with incessant babble. There's part of a game show probably taped before your great-grandfather was born, followed by clips from science fiction films of the 21st century. You are thirsty, and you cannot sleep. Ignoring the mumbled complaints of the people stretched out around you, you get up and step over them, moving through to the room where the screen is. You sit down. Maybe a half-hour of random videos will cure your insomnia. Then the screen changes. It is a news report from the year 2095, the main item concerns the crash of an air cruiser in the Apennine Mountains. You sit forward in your seat, intrigued. Pictures taken from the air reveal the broken tangle of wreckage that was later repaired to form this inn. Suddenly, the picture changes. In another item today, says the announcer's voice, scientists studying the meteor that fell in Egypt last month say that it may be the oldest object in the universe. These pictures show the safety suits that are needed to approach the meteor, which emits radiation of a type never previously identified. The scene flickers to a date months later. A reporter is standing at a roadside, an armoured truck blazing in the background. Terrorists of the sect known as the Volatine Watchers today seized the mysterious meteor as it was being transported to Cairo for further tests. The terrorists who worship the meteor, which they call the Heart of Volant, have yet to issue a statement. Oh, dearie me, I'm getting a, a real workout of my limited repertoire of voices on this episode. 
The screen crackles again, becoming a rich green colour with an outline of the world's continents in red. The continents as they looked before the sea level fell and the polar caps crept down to cover them. A warm, feminine voice speaks. Oh, here's a challenge. And the heart of Volant remained in the hands of cultists for twenty years. They founded the city of Duen in the Sahara and learned how to tap the heart's power which they used to devastating effect in the Paradox War. Later, Duen suffered civil war and became abandoned. I have now completed analysis of the scientific tests carried out before the heart was seized by the cultists. These are my findings. If a sentient creature were to make direct physical contact with the heart, this would release the full energy stored within. The effect would be to activate that creature's total psychic potential. In effect, they would gain ultimate power over their surroundings. This has been a communication from Gaia. Thank you for your attention. The screen goes blank and silent for a moment, then starts to show a cartoon. You hardly notice it. You are too awestruck by the realisation that you have just heard the voice of Gaia. What she said begins to sink in. Ultimate power. It lies somewhere in the ruined city of Duen, across the Saharan ice wastes. Suddenly wary, you look at the sleeping forms stretched out around the room. Did anyone else hear Gaia's broadcast? You listen to the snores, the drone of slow, regular breathing. No one shows any sign of being awake. Plunged in thought, you return to your blanket and stretch out. But now sleep is even harder to come by. When you finally doze off, just a few hours before dawn, your dreams are filled with the images of the strange meteor from space and the power that it contains. Will you go to Duen and seek the heart? Are you tempted by a power that could change the whole world? If so, turn to one. A very intriguing start. Um, we've got a nice clear mission. I love the suggestion that Gaia is somehow aware of its own insanity and is trying to do something about it. That I very much like. He's built a really sort of fascinating take on the post-apocalyptic landscape here. I'm very impressed. You are packed and ready to leave the inn at dawn. Cold grey light seeps in through the row of dusty portholes at the sides of the common room. Making your way to the door, you find the innkeeper polishing the antique formica desk. Seeing you set your pack down beside the door, he comes over and kicks away one of the caretags, which has its metal body pressed against the door sill. You're lucky having those, you say, pushing the door open a crack to take a breath of fresh icy air. The innkeeper grunts as he watches the care tech reorient itself and glide away across the floor. They are a mixed blessing, since they insist on trying to repair the end of the form it had originally. This door is a feature that I added myself. More convenient than the hatchway at the back of the fuselage. But if I leave it unattended for more than a few hours at a time, those wretched care techs always try to weld it to shutter. You smile to show that you sympathise. And once again, I'm so sorry. I'd be grateful for some advice. I'm now travelling to the Sahara. What is the best route? The innkeeper flings the door wide, ignoring the curses that erupt from his customers at the sudden intrusion of cold air. Gazing across the expanse of dazzling white snows, he says, The most obvious course would take you to Venice, where you could board a, a ferry for Kahari, and yet... Uh, he rubs his hands, blowing out a long furl of steam in the chill air. Myself, I'd be tempted to go instead through the Leoness jungle, just to savour a bit of warmth in this frigid world. 
fence across the Jib and Halter and the Atlas Mountains, unless uh, you stumbled across the ruins of Lost Marseille, of course, in which case uh, you might even find a tube tunnel to take you straight to the Sahara, thanking the innkeeper for his advice, commiserating him on the brain damage that makes him talk funny. You indicate that you are ready to pay your bill. He looks at you in surprise and points to a small dapper man in a grey trimmed white snow suit. Your friend there has already paid. At this the small man comes over and extends his hand, smiling broadly. Hello, my name is Carl Bosch. I believe we are travelling in the same direction. Do you wish to accept Kyle Bosch as your companion on the road, or would you rather travel alone? He seems very suspicious to me. And not just because I've given him an irritating voice. Um, if I travel with him, I will have to do the voice again. But it's very rare in game books to find much in the way of characters you spend any time with. And I'm sufficiently excited by that as a concept that I think I will take him with me. I, I overheard you say you were bound for the Saharan ice wastes, says Bosch. My own journey takes me in that direction. As you set off together through the deep drifts of snow... Bosch takes your arm and points to a row of black wooden posts. That is the road to Venice. We can catch the ferry there to Cahira. Would you like to go east to Venice, or would you rather go west through the Leoness jungle? Well, I mean, this is Venice, V-E-N-I-S, showing that, you know, the names have changed a bit over the years. But I'm sure it's still an overpriced tourist trap. So I'm going to go jungle woods, as the innkeeper recommended. He seems like a reasonable, indeterminate, National stereotype? Bosch is not enthusiastic. The Leoness region is infested with malefactors and noctambules, he avers. We would be at great risk. Also, the Atlas Mountains are a daunting obstacle. As your partner in this venture, I strongly urge you to reconsider. He is obviously not willing to accompany you if you insist on heading west. Do you want to do so anyway, or do you want to change your mind and take the road to Venice? I will take the road to Venice with him because, as I say, the excitement of spending time in a game but with another human being is strong. We are instructed to record the code word diamond on our character sheet. I'm a big fan of code words as a way of tracking where you've been and what you've done. They were used in the Eyes of Wonderland book we played uh, not so long ago to pretty good effect. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan of that. Your journey takes you up into the mountains where the days are dull under a leaden sky and the nights are filled with swirling snow. You subsist on a few rations brought with you from the inn, but these are quickly used up. Too quickly. You must reach an inhabited area soon or else starve. Forcing your way bent-backed against a glacial wind, you are traversing a narrow pass when you catch sight of a human figure on a ledge up ahead. Your cries of greeting are ignored, and the figure is hidden for a moment behind a veil of snow. Hurrying forward, you discover several other figures, but none are glad to see you. They are beyond any emotion, in fact, being long dead and frozen into rigid statues by the cold. Yet another great image. What a way to sell us on the dangers of travel. Do you want to go closer to investigate or ignore the frozen corpses and continue along the path? Well, I suppose we could break off their fingers and eat them like ice lollies. Meaty ice lollies, that's a thing we could do. So I guess let's go closer and investigate. Bosch scrambles up to the ledge and goes through the pockets of one of the corpses. I don't like robbing the dead, but there might be some food. 
he mutters. Do you have roguery? Uh, I do not. Do you have paradoxing and a psionic focus? I do. No thoughts remain in the dead minds of these unfortunates. No ordinary psychic could glean anything from them now, but with your special talent, you might be able to reconstruct the last thing they saw. Touching your fingers to the icy brow of the nearest corpse, you mentally strain to gather the last frozen wisps of memory from the lifeless brain inside the skull. The next thing you know, Bosch is shaking you by the arm. You feel as though you've just woken up from a long, drowsy torpor in which your dreams were dominated by a glowing, golden eye. You went into a trance, Bosch tells you. It was like you were hypnotised. Gaze into the dead man's eyes, sightless under their cataracts of frost. What was the last thing you saw before dying? The glowing eye, or was that just your hallucination? We press on. Some great images... Bosch shudders as he looks along the row of dead, white faces. There are at least ten corpses here in the pass, some on this ledge and others perched further among the rocks. They must have climbed up to the ledge to get away from wolves, says Bosch. He's wrong. There are no wolves up here in the mountains. And these people were not cowering from predators when they died. In every case they are frozen in postures that suggest curiosity. Poised, Peering out from the ledge, lines of amazement stamped on their faces, icicles across their wide eyes. Death did not surround them with slavering jaws, but stole up softly, like a thief in the night. The sky is fading from grey to black. If you press on now, you'll have to spend the night in open country, unprotected from the bitter wind. Do you wish to do that, or do you wish to shelter here in the pass? Something killed them. I think I'm going to take my chances out in the open. I feel as though something dark and sinister dwells in this pass. So, yeah, we will go away. Oh, this is great. Night overtakes you on the slope of the mountain. You have to scoop snow to make a rudimentary shelter. Even so, the wind numbs you to the core of your bones. Lose two life points unless you have survival, in which case you know how to construct an effective shelter. You lose only one life point. So, Blanger Heterodox's survival skills basically the same as my survival skills, which is to say, absent. Now down to eight life points. Morning comes as a sullen grey intrusion of light across the cloud-draped sky. Stamping the circulation back into your weary limbs, you set off towards Venice. Dusk is falling on the tenth day after leaving the Etruscan Inn when you finally come in sight of Venice. It shimmers with a thousand lights under a sky like dull green bronze. Hungry and cold, you quicken your pace until you can make out individual buildings. First the temporary shacks where hunters and traders dwell, then the slums of corrugated iron and plastic, which fill the narrow streets that some say were once canals. There's a great little change from the uh, dropping of the water level. Above them loom the blocks of ancient plazas where the rich and powerful of the city reside in palatial buildings, shored up with wooden scaffolding to support them from the ravages of time. You soon learn that the ferry to Cahira is not due for a couple of days. Kyle Bosch tells you he has friends he must visit and arranges to meet up with you when the ferry arrives. It's off planning my murder, I bet. While waiting, you have the choice of where to take lodgings. The lavish Marco Polo Hotel will charge 12 scads for two nights. The Hotel Paradise will charge six scads and the disreputable Doge's Inn will cost only three scads. Decide where you are staying and deduct the money. So, there's two options for Marco Polo. One where you've got an ID card and one where you don't. And the others are just fine. I feel like I want to husband my resources a little bit. So, I think we won't go to the absolute flea pit. We'll go to the Hotel Paradise. 
reducing our supply of scads to 24. Yeah, middle of the range. I would feel, personally, very, very weird going to a properly lavish hotel. I'm not comfortable around luxury, basically. It makes me feel weird. So I'm going to go and, and, and stay in the, not the flea pit, but the mid-price chain hotel. The hotel paradise proves to be in a converted temple overlooked by a high bell tower. You stand looking up at the inside of splendid domes. Once centuries ago, this vast hall must have rung with the horizons to the forgotten deity of that age. Now it echoes instead with the grunt and clamour of people eating in the refectory or clattering up and down the wooden stairway to their rooms. Again, great imagery great imagery although i do think it's unlikely that religion would be a casualty of societal collapse i think if anything faith tends to increase at such times but perhaps not the roman catholic christianity that dominates present-day italy with a day or two to wait until the ferry to cahira arrives you have time to make preparations for the adventure ahead you take a stroll along the esplanade overlooking the gambling rooms of the notorious hazard strip before you in the deep alley that was once the grandest of the canals glaring neon lights and raucous music intrude on the wistful grandeur of venice by night you consider your options do you want to spend your time trying to communicate with Gaia? Do you want to try and discover more about the heart of Volant? Do you want to inquire after travellers who've gone missing on their way to Venice recently? Do you want to go looking for gossip about Kyle Bosch? Or do you want to find some special purchases for the trip? If you hear some wet noises in the background, it's because I've got a cat on my lap and he's enthusiastically washing himself. So hopefully I'll be able to strip them out of the final edit. But if I can't, I apologise. I would move him but he's just so delightful. Of the available options we've got, the one that really appeals to me, I think, is looking for gossip about Kyle Bosch, because I want to make sure that I'm not going to be going on an adventure with a guy who's going to stab me in the back the very second I've outlived my usefulness to him. And there's a really good bit of design there, because as we've been going on, I've, I've mentioned that I'm suspicious of Bosch, and giving you that opportunity is a great, reflection that the writer understands the contextual clues that he's given you you find an answer to your inquiries in a drinking parlor under the bridge of size here a group of men rendered affable and talkative by the vials of synthash liquor they have imbibed tell you all you need to know coy bosch says one of them scowling distractedly out into the drizzle beyond the eaves of the drinking parlor coy bosch i have heard of him a wayfarer and uh, sometimes trader a trader snorts another of the men, sluicing the hot liquor around his mouth before adding, a parasite, rather. His sole instinct is treachery. His sole talent is his self-preservation. He turns to the man who has just spoken. I take it you've personally had dealings with Kyle Bosch. He nods slowly, narrowing his eyes as he peers inward at his memories through a haze of synthash fumes. We collaborated in a smuggling operation, running furs from Dorlbad. This was a few years back. The militia were alerted and Bosch scarpered in the boat, leaving me to face the music alone. They're pigs in Daryl Bad, and that's how I lost these two fingers. Later, I managed to escape, and I heard Bosch been strutting around, telling everyone how I let him down. If I knew where to find him, I'd go this minute and put a knife through his weaselly heart. A third man joins the conversation. I do not wholly disagree with my friend here, except to add that Bosch's character is more complex than he suggests. If he is treacherous or self-serving, he's not aware of being so, for he's a man of such prodigious vanity that he can uh, admit no faults. 
The other man filling his glass again only hisses like an angry swan and says, He's a mere parasite. If you wish to reveal your knowledge of Bosch's whereabouts to the man he betrayed, he will pay you ten scads for the information. If you decide to do that, delete the code word diamond if you have it. I don't think so. I think we can uh, go about our business. I mean, you know, forewarned is forearmed. I feel like we need to just be a little bit careful with Mr. Bosch and make sure we don't let him out of our sight with anything important. But uh, we could still have a kind of, you know, alignment of convenience. If you've not done so already, you can now attempt to make contact with Gaia. Research the legend of the heart of Volant. Buy supplies for your adventure. Investigate the background of Kyle Bosch. Or find out if any travellers have recently gone missing from the Apennine Mountains. Remember, if you possess a Varde Mecham, you can use Streetwise while in Venice. I don't have that. Okay, well, let's go and try and find some supplies. Ooh, first illustration. Yeah, it's pretty good. Not, I would say, one of Russ Nicholson's absolute finest works, and it's not been brilliantly reproduced in this digital edition at all. It is it is not a high-resolution scan, which is a shame, because, of course, Russ Nicholson is defined by his tight line work, so that's a bit of a shame. But it shows a street filled with people wearing sort of interesting furred robes and big hats and the sort of shanty-like lean-tos that are still very recognisably Venice despite being taller than they would otherwise be. Yeah, no, it's quite nice. The main market of Venice is located inside a lavish three-decked galley perched incongruously amid the muddy lower streets. Here, on benches where rowers once plied gilded oars, merchants sit and call out their trade. When a customer shows interest, he's led off to the merchant's storehouse in one of the neighbouring side streets. If you are interested in ordinary goods, that's an option. Or you can go looking for weaponry and other devices. Or if you want to undergo genetic enhancement, that's an option, apparently. Although I imagine that's probably going to be quite a pricey option. Tempting though it is, as someone who definitely wasn't at the top of the, the list for good genes, I don't think I'm going to go meddling with my genetic code. Let's start with the ordinary goods, because I feel like we will need some food for this journey. So, inspecting a range of items laid out on the market stores, you haggle until the following prices are agreed. Rope, lantern, medical kit and food packs are available. The rope is 2, scads, the lantern 3, the medical kit 12, the food packs are 2 each. I guess I will gamble that we only need one food pack. So that takes us down to 22. I will buy a medical kit. As I'm already under par. Do I want the rope and lantern? That would leave me with only five. And I'll do without the rope and lantern. Let's have a look at weaponry and unusual items. A merchant takes you to a vault tunnelled into the block of one of the great piazzas. Passing through the door guarded by two burly men with iron batons, you wait in a short corridor lit by a flickering light panel. At last, a steel door opens in the far end and you walk through into the merchant's storeroom. He shows you what he has for sale. So we have things like a uh, barisol gun with six charges, that's 16 scads. You can have a flashlight for 10, psionic focus for 18, a gas mask for 10, polarised goggles for 8, stun grenades for 8, or a knife for 4. I will also buy such items, the merchant tells you, at half the price I've quoted for sale. This means that if you have a barisol gun, you could sell it to him for 8 scads, for instance. Why should I wish to sell? You ask him. 
His lips curl in an unscrutable half-smile. You have come to Venice for the ferry. I presume you will need money for your ticket. Okay, make any purchases or sales you wish. Then if you have Streetwise or a Vardy Mechum, you can turn to one paragraph. Otherwise, we're on to a different one. I don't have either of those. Another nice but uh, poorly uh, reproduced bit of Ross Nicholson artwork. Yeah, it's very evocative. I love how baroque and alien he manages to make the future look in this work. Dawn hides behind a blanket of dark snow-laden cloud. Huddled in warm furs, a group of travellers make their way to the quayside to awake the ferry. As you approach the ticket kiosk, you see an old man propped like a limp sack on a bench facing out to sea. He is crippled, having no legs, and his face has the look of a clay effigy that has crumpled in on itself through sheer age. A puff of white hair halos his liver-spotted pate. Poor old devil, you think as you pass him. And he is in fact featured in the, the artwork. Um, again, very evocative, does make him look, yeah, I'd say quite inscrutable. He looks up, keen hawk's eyes meet your own. I don't care for your pity, youngster, he snaps. I'm sorry, you say, I didn't mean... And then it hits you, he can read your mind. Of course I can read your mind. Have you never heard of the Baron Syriasis? Before you can reply, he hauls himself to the edge of the bench. It seems to you that he's about to fall to the ground and you take half a step forward, but he glances at you and says, I don't need your help either. To your amazement, he rises into the air until he's hovering in front of you, his gaze level with yours. For a moment, your eyes lock. You hear his words of warning not spoken but burning their way into your mind. Don't go to Duen if you want to live. Abruptly he turns and drifts away. A woman standing behind you in the queue glances after him and says, That's Baron Seracis, one of the lords of Beslant. He's said to be one of the most powerful psionics alive. You've never before seen a man with enough psychokinetic power to levitate his own body. Indeed, who can doubt it? You reply. Do you have the code word diamond? I surely do. It's a nice little interlude. Again, another way of just reminding us we're not in Kansas anymore, that the relatively, I don't say humdrum, but the relatively quotidian business of getting ready for the next stage of our journey is still punctuated by something surreal and unusual. So anyway, we've got the code word diamond. As the queue moves along, Kyle Bosch hurries to join you stamping his feet to fend off the morning chill. He tells you that he was delayed by some last-minute purchases in town. You notice a new barisol gun at his belt. Oh dear. We're on our way now, he says excitedly, grinning as he stares out into the mist over the sea. The adventures have begun. A problem arises when you reach the ticket office. The cost of passage to Kahira is ten scads each. Bosch peers woefully at his remaining funds and then to you, and then turns to you with a shrug. You'll have to pay for me, I'm afraid, since we're partners. I'm sure you'll agree I've never stinted from doing my bit up till now. If you agree to pay for both yourself and Bosch, you can reduce your money by 20 scads. If you're prepared to pay for yourself but not for him, you can cross off 10 scads. If you don't have enough money even to buy your own ticket, then that's a third option. So I've got exactly 10, which means now I have exactly zero. Bosch frowns in indignation and amazement. Oh, I cannot understand your attitude. I've worked very hard getting you this far, and now you propose to abandon me. You thank the official for your ticket and then turn to Bosch, saying, In the area of wilderness survival, you turned out to be long on opinion, but short on expertise. 
Even so, I tolerated your company because you gave me to understand that your contacts would be useful once we reach civilization. However, I have not seen anything of you for two days we spent in Venice. Now you show up like a bad penny having squandered your money on fancy gear such as that new barrisol gun. Do you have the audacity to expect me to pay for your passage? Bosh, you are an idiot. Though taken aback, he is not at a loss for words, and I suspect he is never at a loss for words. I expected a little more support from you. Have you forgotten that I started out with the gesture of comradeship by paying your bill at the Etruscan Inn before I knew a thing about you? That more than anything else should have warned me off associating with you. It's the typical conman's opening gambit. I give a bored sigh. <sighs> Farewell, Bosch. You walk off towards the seafront before he can say anything else. Delete the code word diamond from your character sheet. Alas, alas for travelling with a companion, but it seems like it's probably the best choice. After 15 minutes, a pale green light flashes through the murk out to sea. The assembled travellers start to rise and gather their belongings as the ferry comes sweeping in towards the dock. A massive hovercraft, oh god, remember hovercrafts? Of three tiered decks surmounted by high conning tower, the ferry glides up the frosty foreshore and settles on its metal skirt. Workers immediately rush out with planks to assemble a boardwalk, and you go aboard with the others. That's a thing that really dates it. Now, if I remember correctly, the, the only year-round passenger hovercraft service in the UK, and I've just checked, I am right, is hover travel, which operates between Portsmouth and the Isle of Wight. The world's only year-round passenger hovercraft service. I beg your pardon. So there we go. Hovercrafts, big in the 80s and the early 90s, not really a thing anymore, which is a shame. There is a delay while supplies are loaded. You find a couch on the middle deck and gaze out to sea. A polarising tint in the glass adds to the gloominess of the scene, with tall iron-black clouds piled high above a sea of grey and ice flows. Eventually the craft raises itself and you are underway. Stewards come round and lunch is served at long curved tables in the central lounge. You chew at a stodgy gruel formulated from sea algae washed down with spiced tea. You take a promenade of the outside deck. Are you insane? That's how you drown taking promenades on the outside decks of seafaring vehicles. The thing to do on any boat trip is to huddle below decks, rocking backwards and forwards and weeping. A promenade. Death wish more like. The chill of the afternoon soon drives you back inside. Some of the other passengers have started card games. As the daylight fades, a gap in the lowering clouds reveals a handful of diamond-bright stars. The bar is opened, and the atmosphere aboard gradually acquires a current of bonhomie, but you remain aloof and troubled. Most of these people have no further destination in mind than Kahiro, net ambition. No ambition beyond a small profit and the frisson of petty adventures. But your own goal is direly remote. The lost ruins of Duen in the far hinterland of the Saharan ice wastes. It seems impossible to believe, but there in Duen you will either grasp the ultimate power or perish. At dawn the ferry enters the Isis estuary and skims upriver towards Kahira. Taking a stroll on the deck, you notice a waft of warmth rising from the river. It eases the bitter chill of the morning air. Questioning one of the sailors, you learn that heating pipes are laid along the riverbed. No one knows the source of energy, but the effect is to keep the Isis from freezing, with the result that river plants and fish are more plentiful than you would expect. That is the basis of Kahira's popularity, he tells you. But one day the pipes will fail, 
when the river will freeze and uh, Kahira must die. You glance to the east where the sun struggles morosely behind a drape of stern grey cloud. That is the whole world's eventual fate, you say. Oh, wonderful sense of decay and collapse and wonders of an earlier civilization that function, but the mechanisms by which they function are no longer known. I'm really, really enjoying the ambience of this. Kahira hoves into view around a bend in the river. It stands on massive concrete buttresses straddling the Isis, a huge fortress city with towers like spines along its back, looking like a beast of mechanical Armageddon against the wintry surroundings. The ferry glides to a halt. The gang ramp is extended and you disembark in front of the city gates. Do you have the code word diamond? Not anymore. Kahira is shrouded in a perpetual mist that rises from the warm river waters that flow beneath the city. The city gate is a metal shutter opening into a wide cargo lift at the bottom of a concrete buttress. You hurry through just before the gate closes for the final time this evening. Standing in a crowd of people, donkeys and camels, you wait for the lift while it rattles up to the street level and opens to disgorge its passengers onto a fog-draped plaza. You step out under the dank glare of a neon lamp and gaze around the plaza, ignoring the stragglers barging past you with their packs. The babble of voices is muffled by the fog. The air is dankly cold with a flat reek of mist and wet concrete. A man wearing an illuminated fez scurries up to you, brushing his fingertips together as though washing. A clutch of snaggled teeth gleam in the streetlight as he bows. Greetings. I am Bader, a Draco man. For a single scad, I will be pleased to assist you with the many queries you must have regarding this estimable city. I do not have a single scad to my name, so I'm going to have to tell him to sling his hook, I'm afraid. If you possess an ID card and wish to make use of it, you can. I do not, and I don't. Otherwise, if you've not already done so, you could try and find out about Baron Cirrhosis, 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 Chame Golgoth. Gilgamesh or the Sphinx? Well, I already know about Gilgamesh, although I'm assuming this is not the Gilgamesh of legend, the one with the uh, Goatman sidekick called Enkidu, who was tamed by a harlot over seven days of sexual Olympics. If you've not read the Epic of Gilgamesh, it's great. So I could try and find out about Baron Syriasis, I suppose. A row of coffee stalls lines the side of the plaza. There you discover that Baron Syriasis is a frequent visitor to Kahira. The one with no legs, says a man bearing the cape and baton of the city militia. Yes, he's a member of the Compass Society. I have heard that he's one of the Soy Lords of the Byzant. Byzant, formerly Istanbul, suffered heavy bombardment of exotic radiation during the Paradox War. When the fallout stabilised and the city once again became habitable, it was discovered that psionic forces worked there to an enhanced degree. Those with psionic powers soon made themselves the hereditary overlords of Byzant, a group characterised by arrogance and disdain for the common herd of mankind. Baron Syriasis is one of these, and having met him, yeah, he seems exactly like that. Do you have Streetwise? I do not. The hour is late. It is time you found somewhere to pass the night. The Ossiman Hotel is still open and charges five scads for a bed. If you wish to take a room there, you can cross off the sum of five scads. If you prefer to save money by sleeping rough on the streets, well, it's the only option we have, so that's the one we will go to. The world-building in this is absolutely up my street. This is tailor-made for my 
interests in science fiction. Thank you to the people who recommended it to me. Do you have Streetwise? I do not. It's starting to seem like Streetwise might have been a good skill to have. If you don't, you can bed down in a park, a quiet back alley, or an open plaza. I mean, none of those are appealing. I guess the back alley is the least unappealing. From some of the conversations I've had with homeless people, I know that it's important to be out of sight if you're sleeping rough, because between the police and random awful people, you are quite likely end up with significant issues if you're not careful. So, yeah, getting off the beaten path is probably the right plan. You find a deserted alley where you slump down behind a stack of cardboard boxes. You have no sense of how long has passed when you feel a boot nudge you in the ribs. You open your eyes. Half a dozen figures stand over you in the dim, mist-filtered moonlight. Get up, says a voice. You start to rise, but the nearest figure sweeps out his leg and sends you sprawling back against the wall. You steady yourself against the damp brickwork and glare back at them. A woman steps forward and speaks in a brittle, zealous voice. We are the Church of Gaia. Give us your belongings. Give of your belongings that Gaia may bring salvation to the world. You have heard of this cult, just one of hundreds that has sprung up in the latter days of the world as people turn in their desperation to strange beliefs. The church is founded on a particularly deranged creed. Instead of thinking Gaia to be a sophisticated computer, they believe she is the creator goddess. Do you want to give them money? Otherwise you must use cunning or you must fight them. So I've got the option, actually, of both cunning and fighting because I'm okay in a scrap. And presumably I'm also quite annoyed because, as a visionary, the Church of Gaia are very much trespassing on my domain. I think we'll try cunning first and see whether that bears fruit. The goddess Gaia! You cry in a voice of rapture. Blessed is she, exalted above all others. Give praise to Gaia. Praise be to Gaia! They reply like robots. The priestess fixes you with a gimlet stare. What do you know of our goddess? You return a beatific smile. She has given me a holy mission. That is why I have come to Kahira. And if she had not guided me on every step of the journey, I would never have survived. It is a miracle indeed. One of the others is indignant to hear you say this. Such lies, he fumes. It is blasphemy. You must be punished for your blasphemy, unbeliever. He starts forward to kick you, but the priestess holds up her hand. She is watching you with a faraway look. No, I sense it is the truth. You stifle a sigh of relief. Either it's your honest face or she has some telepathic ability. Give them a broad grin. It's perfectly true. Leave me in peace or Gaia will curse you. Better yet, give donations to help me in my holy cause. With peevish ill grace, they hand over some cash. Then shuffle off in search of someone else to victimise. So that nets us ten scads. At dawn, you set off to the bazaar, whistling a jaunty tune. Okay, I have been recording for about an hour and 20 minutes, so I don't want to spoil too much of this wonderful, wonderful game book. So I think I will leave the recording there as we have successfully managed to browbeat some religious extremists into giving us money. 
I will continue this playthrough off mic over the next few days, maybe have another go at it as well, and come back for you in a couple of seconds, for me in a week or so, with my definitive take on Heart of Ice. But let's be honest, I'm probably almost certainly going to be saying very nice things about it. Tatty bye. I'm going to try and keep my remarks fairly brief because this isn't a book where I want to spoil any more of the plot than I already have with my recording. The headline is Heart of Ice is amazing. Thank you to everyone who suggested it. My gaming world is intensely richer for the experience. Although the art isn't rendered in the highest quality, which is a tragedy because, as I've said ad nauseam, Russ Nicholson is great, that's the only fault I have about the production quality of this ebook edition of Heart of Ice. Everything points to the right place, as far as I can tell, and it's been formatted so that a maximum of one section appears per page. I have the text pretty big on my screen because I'm dyslexic and it helps not to have a huge impenetrable wall of text to look at. I suppose it might look a bit weird if you like your text small, but most of the sections are a bit longer, so I wouldn't imagine that to be a huge issue. Basically, top marks for whoever did the layout and design for this ebook, they've done a bang up job. The longer entries brings me to the quality of the writing. This is possibly the best written game book I've ever played. On a technical level, the prose is evocative, perhaps not as brilliantly punchy as Ian Livingstone at his best, but head and shoulders above the competition. I think the Jonathan Green Alice in Wonderland book that I covered a while back is the only serious competitor for the title of genuinely extremely well-written adventure game book. Morris uses a wider lexicon than many writers in this field, and some of his descriptions are wonderfully prolix. And those descriptions are descriptions of the world he's created, and the world-building, I think, is fabulous. I'm a big fan of the melancholy sci-fi concept of the dying Earth. I really like the works of Clark Ashton Smith, Jack Vance, and I rate William Hope Hodgson's gloriously impenetrable Finn de Seckler fantasy novel The Nightlands as one of my all-time favourite books. Dave Morris clearly likes the same things I do because he dedicates this book to Jack Vance and the whole world is shot through with a sense of fatalistic decline as we trek through the ruins, the surreal ruins, of a civilization past the point of final collapse. It's exactly my kind of aesthetic, it's depressing and it's weird. I just love it. Lots of people have written about computers turning on humanity. The Matrix and the Terminator franchises are good examples, but to have the computer be more of a quixotic and unpredictable overlord is a really neat wrinkle on that idea, and obviously it was a much newer idea when Morris originally wrote this book. There's clearly a similar aesthetic going on here to the RPG Paranoia, which I played extensively as a child, but here it's less overtly satirical and more enervated, more quietly despondent. In terms of the systems, there's a lot to like here as well. The way the 12 skills interact gives you very different experiences depending on which ones you select on multiple playthroughs. I played entirely different characters because I just wanted to know how areas would change if I picked different skills. 
it's a fantastic way of keeping the game fresh even as you play through it for a second, third or even fourth time. The book is constantly tantalising you with paths you could have taken if only you had the right combination of skills. And because the areas have been so beautifully written and so clearly defined, it's easy enough to remember which bits you want to explore again with a new character. The selection of skills are backed up by the equally strong use of keywords. Now, all skills, objects, bits of knowledge, codes are essentially keys in game books since they all unlock new areas of the book. But skills, objects and keywords in Heart of Ice all signpost towards different solutions. So you know that if you need a skill to get to a particular area, your main recourse is going to be to start with that skill. So there's no worry that you've missed something early on. You just go, OK, if I want to explore this bit, I need to pick a different character. Objects must be found or purchased, or in rare cases, included in your sort of starting kit. Heart of Ice is relatively fond of giving you lists of objects to buy with your dwindling resources, and sticking a lot of objects in one place, again, makes it very easy to go back and make different choices another time. It, it takes some of that needle-in-a-haystack element away from the design. It does still have objects that you can find throughout play on top of those, but it's trying not to make those overwhelming and it does a good job. Now the keywords on the other hand all relate as far as I can tell to people. So when the text asks you if you have a keyword you know for future playthroughs that there's someone you need to talk to in order to unlock that path. Even though all of these things are mechanically the same in that they allow you to turn to an otherwise inaccessible section, dividing them into these categories helps point players towards possible solutions. The use of keywords for people also allows Morris to track relationships in a way that is probably the most dynamic I've ever seen in a game book. In fact, scratch the probably, it's just the most dynamic I've ever seen in a game book. This feels like a world that is populated with people, and people who matter, not just because you can talk to them, but because they're all doing stuff that matters to them. Your relationship with the morally dubious Karl Bosch can change depending on how you approach the game, and he's doing stuff in the background even if you completely ignore him. He's got his own things going on. Very clever stuff indeed. I also want to acknowledge that this is a book that treats you like a grown-up. It's asking you whether you have keywords, not demanding that you turn to secret sections, and therefore it's trusting that you'll play fair for no better reason than because you're having fun playing fair. And if you're not having fun playing fair, it's kind of up to you if you don't want to do that anymore. There were several parts where I declined to follow possible leads because my character didn't know who the NPCs the text was referring to were. Because the world is rich and the challenges are interesting, I wasn't motivated to skip more quickly to the end. Now, on later playthroughs, I found it useful to just assume I had all the skills because I was focused on trying to find certain items and people for no better reason than I wanted to know how to find them. I knew by that point how skills tied into the main plot and I, I knew that there was a particular set that could get me to the end in one piece. Now I was just trying to find all the bits I missed and I appreciate being able to do that in my own way. It's like turning on the cheats in a video game you've already beaten just so that you can find all the secret areas without being hassled. 
It's a strong design choice, and one I especially appreciate after playing the rather unforgiving Masks of Mayhem, which was let down by wanting to prevent people from getting to the end dishonestly as the author saw it. I don't think it's always a bad thing to have secret sections. I just think that they should be kept under very tight wraps, and only some of the time, or very infrequently, should they ever be required to beat the game. Having a very, very challenging bit is fine. Making that bit absolutely necessary is obnoxious. If I have any overall gripe with Heart of Ice, it's that in some places your decisions feel too consequential, if that makes sense. There's a lot of places where the paragraph you turn to is entirely conditional on your skills or an object you brought from a list a while ago. There might be five possible exits from the section, but you don't actually get to choose the one you take. You decided that three locations ago when you found a green space helmet. The green space helmet is going to be making your decisions for you now, and you just have to live with it. In terms of your actions having meaning, it's great, but there's times when I found myself hankering for the ability to make a meaningful decision in the moment. And that's only a very small gripe. It's a design choice, it's not a mistake. In many ways it fits with the melancholy tone of the Dying Earth genre. They're often defined by characters who lack total agency, both because of their own past decisions, but also because of the constraints of a world that simply has less options by virtue of its high entropic value. I also found that I missed my dice. That's partly because I'm a gamer and I love dice instinctively, but also because I think little mini-games do a lot to break up the story and make the experience feel longer and richer. Adding, adding a little randomness in makes the world somehow feel more alive to me. Again, this is clearly a stylistic choice informed by Morris's use of keywords at a very high level of technical proficiency. Morris has tracked your life points very carefully, to create moments of tension, and that's not possible to the same degree if you add randomness in. I get it, I think it was the right decision for this book, considering just how many moving parts there are, but I still miss rolling dice. I just do. I like rolling dice. In conclusion, Heart of Ice is simply brilliant. I wanted to talk about some more of the specifics, but I felt the less I spoil, the better the experience will be for you, and I do want to preserve that sense of mystery because this is a very special game book. I'll only add that in classic Fantastic Fight style, I died almost immediately after deciding to stop recording in case I beat the book on my first attempt. And it didn't feel like losing though because I immediately knew what character I wanted to pick next. And I knew where I wanted to go and what I wanted to look at and that's some top level writing. So yeah, wholehearted endorsement from me. If you want to play Heart of Ice, you can pick up a digital edition from Amazon for 99 UK pence. That's an absolute bargain, and I urge you to grab a copy to support Dave Morris. And I think if we all pitch in, he might actually see the price of a medium cappuccino out of it. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks once again to my patrons for making this episode possible. I'll be back hopefully in just a couple of weeks with another big hitter. Steve Jackson's legendary Creature of Havoc often considered one of the finest entries in the fighting fantasy canon. That one, I hope, is going to be a belter of an episode. So until next time, take care, stay safe, and I'll see you soon.